This is episode three of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative nine, existence one. Reminiscent of the Dahlia Steps, the royal family estate was not on the same rock of land which Cultural City had been built upon. Instead, there were three floating slabs which were interconnected with each other and then to the main city. It was on the third most outer rock where the royal family lived, guarding the subconscious world with their authority and might. I had received mixed reactions to the royal family. Many believed that they did a great job guarding and monitoring Cultural City and providing the freedom which the city wanted. However, others critiqued the lack of services provided to the outer parts of the subconscious. The royal family's power did not extend as far into Gignasco as the family claimed. I stood at the first gate of the royal family estate, not even upon the first rock of the three. It seemed as though my quest to visit the king would be denied, as the guards ripped me apart with their edged questions. "'Who are you to ask for a visitation?' the one guard snarled, looking at me with disdain. All of those I had met in Cultura City had been average-appearing humans, unlike the tanned savages with gold and carmine eyes in the Blade Desert, but these guards were bulky and seemed ready to pick for a fight. "'I need to speak with the king,' I muttered. "'I have very important questions that I believe only the king might know. I don't know if I can speak with you about these questions, but please, please speak with an adamant tone to the king. He will want to hear me out.' Crackling footsteps approached the front gate, and the three guards spun around on their heels. The guard uniform was pretty simple. They looked like police officers, except in maroon. The man who was walking closer to me wore the same ensemble, yet in an even darker shade of brown. The man's hair was shaved into the most powerful mohawk I had seen in my entire life. I'm the head guard, Jack, the mohawk man said, eyes on me. No doubt the other guards were familiar with the head of their ensemble. Jack had white skin and outlined in linear facial features. His lips and eyebrows formed straight lines of low-key fury. The head of the royal family would like to see you. He does want to see me. He didn't even know I was here. The head of the royal family has access to watch the cameras to his security, Jack explained. Come with me. The three guards opened the main gate, which opened the first bridge. The bridge was simple, large enough for two vehicles to travel side by side with enough space for both. Jack and I walked towards the first rock, the unsupported metal bridge under our feet. This place is quite impressive, I muttered. How long have you worked here? All my life! For some reason, I didn't doubt Jack on that fact either. The nebula looked beautiful here as we continued walking forward. The first rock had some kind of barracks and another checkpoint. All sorts of guards seemed to be on the rock. Some were tinkering with equipment while some ate food and chatted. Other guards watched Jack with anticipation and fear, while viewing me with confusion and wonder. No doubt I was some type of black sheep trying within the royal family's land. Jack wasn't going to try and converse with me, so we walked in silence. The second rock mimicked the first rock. More guards, although this place seemed more of an administrative center than barracks and training grounds. Once again, we were cleared through a checkpoint and began walking now towards the home of the royal family. The royal family's castle was beautiful and stately, made with twisted metal that formed intricate walls. It was not a typical living arrangement, but seemed fitting for the highest family within Cultura City. The guarded front doors allowed Jack and I through, and so we made our way through the large grand foyer, filled with antique furniture, large-scale paintings, twinkling chandeliers, and velvet draperies. Through the foyer, we moved to the room behind it, which was some kind of ballroom. 
There were large pillars which held the ceiling up, along with four guards stationed on the perimeters. The stone floor was draped with a velvet walkway, and the stylization mimicked the foyer. The walls were painted with the beautiful collages of men and women, along with the haunting landscapes of different biomes and lands which existed in Gignasco. Ah, so this is the visitor! A voice boomed out from a figure who was sitting in a simplistic yet beautifully sculpted throne. The man stood up to welcome me, shaking my hand with vigor. Jack nodded and excused himself. His golden ensemble soon vanished. The head of the royal family was a black man with glistening skin which revealed no flaw or age. He wore purple, the color of true royalty. Gold chains connected the cape around his shoulders, while his shirt's buttons and cufflinks were the same golden flavor. The head of the royal family was absolutely smitten with my arrival. He not only smiled within his lips, but his eyes as well. He seemed open and ready for a positive discussion, especially when compared to the guests I had originally met. "'What is your name?' the king asked, his voice as sweet as prime nectarine peel and filled with chorus of excitement. "'I am Sidney Mercer,' I introduced, extending the hand which the king took in a hefty grasp. "'Thank you for meeting with me.' "'I am the head of the royal family, also known as the king.' The king smiled, a glint of intrigue forming on his face. "'I saw you over the cameras. You have a unique aura of someone with whom I should meet.' "'Thank you, sir.' "'What is your intentions here?' the head of the royal family asked. "'Now that I have seen you, my intuition is correct. You are a special person.' "'Thank you,' I nodded. "'I'm looking for Clark.' If that's possible, I've been asked to find him while seeking information on Lavender. Oh. The head of the royal family did not speak, but he raised his hand in dismissal. The troops around the king's manor all left, leaving just the king and I. Something important was most likely to drop, and I was fortunate to be privy to it. With an empty grand room, the man in front of me's happy demeanor turned serious. He exists. The head of the royal family's eyes popped like fireworks, his voice expanding with anticipation and flavor. Clark is real! How do you know this? I asked. Many consider him to be a myth or a fable. Because his energy is detectable, the king explained. We are aware that he's out there, but there is no way to pinpoint him as of yet. In fact, pinpointing him would be almost impossible. Clark is a moving figure who twists through time and space within this world. To find him would be short of a miracle. So he's a person? Perhaps. The head of the royal family sat back in his chair and beckoned for me to sit in a chair which was situated close to him by his elevated throne. Being the head of the royal family means I'm aware of a lot of information. I receive many memos and stories about the world about which I am supreme. Although it doesn't feel like I'm supreme because there are so many people here who want to see the world burn. I can only do so much, honestly, but enough about that. I'm aware that Clark is a thing, even though sometimes many people consider it a farce, and I as well know about Lavender, that exists too. Tell me more about Clark and Lavender, I begged, trying not to sound as desperate as I was. Clark is the creator, the head of the royal family explained. He's out there, deep in the world, 
No one knows where. Some believe his habitat is ruled by invisibility or some kind of lack of access to ordinary people. They say that we are nothing more than the mind and visions of Clark. We are bound to him as he is bound to us. The only difference in this equal relationship is Clark is the one thing, while the rest of the world is a collective source. It's not even a true 50-50 kind of relationship. Have you seen Clark? No, and... I don't know anyone who has seen Clark either, the head of the royal family shrugged. I don't think he can be seen of anybody of this world. What about someone not from this world? (laughs) Well, that's ludicrous, (laughs) the king chuckled, as if I had joked about some kind of preposterous situation. I debated telling the king about my true identity, but Rodney's words from beyond the grave floated into my mind. And what about Lavender? People down south have talked about lavender, the king explained. Us northerners are less aware of lavender, but apparently lavender is the powers which Clark has access to. Lavender is a key part of why we are able to function. It's a key source of Clark's strength. I don't know much about lavender, although there are stories of people feeling a kind of quaint energy within the air. That is what my men and I believe to be lavender. So if I keep looking, I'll come across this all. It's possible to find Clark and to uncover the secret of Lavender. I believe, the head of the royal family shrugged, this could all be uncovered. This could all be hidden away in the world forever, though. But I respect your mission. If I wasn't the king, I would love to accompany you, but I cannot. However, I can have an assistant come with you. The head of the royal family turned to his small desk and picked up his phone. Moments later, the door to which I had entered opened up. A singular woman in her own carmine gear walked into the room. She looked serious, her skin the color of a light maroon and her black hair tied up in a large bun, which was both tighter than her thin smile. Upon her side was a gun and a sword. Both weapons seemed to be ready to use at any moment. She did not appear to be the kind of girl to go easy on her opponent either. Helena Price will accompany you to the end of your journey. I will put blessings for the two of you. Helena will grab some supplies on the way out of the barracks. Your best bet is to head out of the city and into the vast wilderness of the world. I cannot provide you much in your trip. But I can provide you one of the best gods in the building and city. Thank you, I muttered to the king, truly thankful, although worried about how my second companion would do in this world. Good luck finding Clark. The head of the royal family smiled as part of his dismissal of Helena and I. I believe in you. If you can, I'd love for you to tell me if you find him. If I don't hear from you, I'll assume you're searching or you died trying. Chapter Negative 10 Mother and Son I had yet to even speak with Helena Price, and it wasn't until we were on our final bridge prior to the mainland culture city that she spoke. We were walking slowly out of the royal family's floating rocks, and she looked at me. So if it's true from what I've overheard, you're looking for Clark. Helena muttered. Why did you feel drawn to this mission? I just do, I shrugged. Do I need a reason? I find that most people have a reason, Helena argued, shoving my words to the ground as if she could smell the lies. Rarely do things happen without reason. So what do you think my reason is? 
Clearly, you're battling some kind of level of desperation by coming to the king. No ordinary person would do such a thing. I'm glad you find me past ordinary. Oh, absolutely. The king wouldn't just give out one of his top guards for nothing, would he? I'm not familiar with the king enough to know his decision-making. Well, I am familiar with the king's decision-making. You're rare, trust me. But the king is right. There's something about you. You naturally carry some kind of aura. It's hard to explain, but, but, well, here I am trying to explain it. Normally, I know how to explain things. Is that the type of person you are? Some kind of control anal freak? No. Yes. I didn't know what Clark King knew about Helena Price, but clearly he was able to tell me the truth in my mind. I used the information to my advantage. I think you are. What makes you say that? I think we both know how to read people. Good for you. And you. We were finally reaching the main gate upon the rock of Cultura City. So you'll have to educate me about where we go next. I suppose we can go to the Mador Pass, Helena shrugged. You came from the way of the savages in the Blade Desert, and really the only way to go is the Mordor Pass, so we could climb down to the jungle below, but it could be dangerous if you don't know how to steady yourself through such a large passage of air. So the Mordor Pass it is, I answered for us. We crossed through the city, still covered in plants and beautiful scenery. I'd never seen a city which had such serene grace within the threshold of a metropolis. It was a refreshing city, and was currently the only time in Clark King's subconscious where I had felt safe. The mind of a man had proven more dangerous than comforting, a fact that spoke volumes about general humanity. So tell me about the past, then. The Mordor Pass was originally built in an effort to expand Culture City, Helena explained. The city has seemingly maxed out and was swelling with new blood, so they built this bridge in an effort to expand this rock close by. Interestingly enough, the rock was just as large and was filled with large balloons, which the city promised they'd pop, but a small settlement formed on the new land, but otherwise, nobody wanted to live on the other side of the bridge, so it stands there practically unused. Although, it is a good connector to the balloon plateau and all, I suppose. Below us is the Awakening Jungle, and below Balloon Plateau is the Feral Mountains. Both are pretty far beneath us, so we'll have to be careful on our descent. It'd be easier to climb down to the Feral Mountains than the Awakening Jungle, though. Interesting, I sighed. Why do you think people don't want to move? Because the only place people feel safe is truly on this land. Helena Price motioned to the small world of Cultura City. Being outside its domain seems to invite the undesired. We arrived at the connection of Mordor Bridge within Cultura City. Indeed, cars and buses whipped themselves within the interior of the city, but there was no traffic or flow into the bridge. At the gate of the bridge were two large stone statues, both women with long hair and wide eyes. The women looked to be in the same collection, both strong, thick, and built in a manner of protection. The bridge itself was iron red, almost like San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge in color and size. I couldn't see how long the bridge spread on for, but I suppose Helena and I were about to find out. I was the one to take the first step forward as Helena mimicked my movements. Cultura City seemed to fade quickly out as if it hadn't existed earlier. The purple sky pulsated into mid-violet with a deep touch of lilac. I finally realized that the color of lavender could be seen within the shades of the sky. I wondered what significance may be at play there. It would not affect me for a while. Originally, it was like a bullet wound and I couldn't feel it. The pain from the moment formed the adrenaline and other bodily charge. The bullet stayed in, the blood came out. 
but it was like some long-seated illness. It was years later when I discovered the pain, years after the discovery where I could pinpoint the bullet and decades to try and remove the bullet. Some people go through life without such a deep bullet, others take the bullet and remove it, but my bullet was not like any of that. My bullet dug into my skin and exploded into chunks. The bullet became bound on my body as the muscle, nerve, and skin swallowed the bullet whole. The trauma became part of me without my consent. My body decided what was best for itself and I. My love for her was a bridge that now seemed meaningless and broken. She had abandoned me, but not because of her own will, but because of illness. Then again, I was only nine when it happened. I was barely conscious, and it wouldn't be deep into life when I realized the pain I had never taken care of. Not many people lose their mother at such a young age. So this was what the bridge was about, the actual death of his mother. So right now, Clark King was nine, and everything I had experienced had been part of a normal childhood, but now going forward, his mother's death was going to be part of the theme. I couldn't imagine a continuing world where his mother's death didn't affect him. Clark King was on Orboros of struggle, and I would be within the coaster which would ride infinity loop. Helena Press and I continued walking while a lone car traveled past us and into the open arms of Cultura City. A shuffling figure came up on our right and suddenly made their way towards us. Helena and I were two peas in a pod. We were soldiers and acted as such. Both of us had our eyes out on the individual whose appearance was in the harsh unknown. Could either of you help me? The beggar whispered, and I immediately detected a feminine energy from behind the hooded and cloaked figure. How can we help? I asked out of curiosity, and not out of the want to help. I could use some food. The beggar knew the answer she wanted rather quickly. Helena Price studied the woman with an expression of distrust. Food, I don't think I have much, but I can check. I opened my bag to check for food and noticed that the beggar had shifted closer to me. I was a little thrown off by the movement, but before I could say something or ponder on the situation, Helena Price had pulled out her sword and tossed it right through the hooded figure's neck, or what I assumed was a neck. I was absolutely shocked as Helena Price pulled her blade backwards. What the fuck? I began, but trailing off into silence and an open jaw when I noticed that some kind of yellow, goopy liquid was dripping down Helena Price's blade. The hooded figure's robe collapsed to reveal some kind of inhuman beauty. Her eyes were large and her lashes danced like some kind of fairy wind. Her hair was long and thick, spilling in cinematic fashion while her body's curves were what most men desire. The woman's neck was spilling gobs of its blood, cheesy cube-looking gobs which oozed into some sort of slime. Without saying a word, the woman sprinted across the bridge, jumped onto the rail, and jumped off the bridge and into the abyss below. Ran over to the side of the bridge and looked down, but could not see the woman's body. Granted, a thin cloud haze covered most of my vision. Helena Price had not ran over to the side of the bridge, but she soon arrived after. I turned to her, confused as hell. What the fuck just happened? A lot for you, clearly. Helena chuckled as she continued walking forward. I jogged a couple steps and walked in line with her. Care to explain? That woman was an eater, Helena explained to me. You sense them pretty easily because eaters like to disguise themselves and keep a low and undetected presence. Like this one, she clearly devoured vitality. Did you see how pretty she was? 
Can't even imagine the amount of victims she must have eaten. I've heard stories of small towns overrun by singular eaters. Some will eat your vitality, your time, your energy, your soul, your story. Well, anything they want, they live off of it. And then you know you have an eater when they bleed their weird yellow goop. Ugh. I have to wash my sword as soon as we get to some kind of water source. Eaters sound deadly as fuck. You're lucky I was here, otherwise you would have been dead, no doubt about it. Fuck, you're not serious. Of course, that bitch almost had you. A while later, Helena and I exited the Mordor Pass. Another two statues formed the endpoint as the road formed over onto the plateau in front of us. Interestingly enough, instead of piles of trees, there were large, comfortable balloons which floated casually in the air. Most of them seemed to be filled with oxygen and not helium as the balloons shifted and danced their way in the midair. Before and after the death of my mother, I'd always had an interest in balloons. I'd buy a real tree pack and blow them up and set them into the air. I loved watching the balloons fly through the air. I was constantly wondering where the balloons would go. Would someone in my similar shoes come across my balloon? It's wild, isn't it? I asked Helena Price, turning to her to expect some kind of reaction. I thought I was the emotionless one within the partnership, but she shrugged in absolute indifference, which I had come to live by throughout most of my life, but found hard to hold onto within this world. Chapter negative 11, Teeth Without Grit. The sign on the outskirt of town said Maxandilla Town, but nothing else was said about the small village which lay huddled in the middle of the balloons. Out here, the balloons looked more like thickets, when the far distance, the balloons seemed to be a forest. The dusty ground reminded me of some kind of despot, and I wondered if this dry acclimate was a metaphor in the weight. Maxandilla Town was small, perhaps a cluster of a hundred homes and ten offices. There was pretty much a main street and a couple side streets. There was no way to separate the town from the living history that no one wanted to move out here. The homes and businesses were quaint and wooden, but a lot of the businesses had to do with health. A doctor's office, a dentist's office, an orthopedic's office, a veterinarian's office. They were all built next to each other like an outlet mall. They must be very concerned with their teeth here. Helena shrugged. Seriously, the majority of these businesses and homes belong to doctors. Maybe living so far from Cultura City has made them more reliant on themselves, I explained as we passed a couple large balloons. The latex was a forest green color. The two balloons acted like trees in the middle of Maxandilla Town, most likely nothing new to anyone from this dimension. But to me, they looked like liars perched upon string. But I was currently without anyone who knew my secret of being from a different world. Helena and I had arrived into Maxandilla Town as nightfall began to trapeze across the sky. There were a few citizens who turned to notice us, although none of them seemed friendly. The piercing looks, fresh white doctor robes, and silence said more than any introduction or first impression. Instead of wandering outside or drawing more suspicion, Helena and I came across the only hotel in town. The hotel was connected by a bar and was ran by the owner, Dr. Roscoe. Welcome to Maxandilla Town. I'm Dr. Roscoe. Dr. Roscoe extended his hand, which I shook. Hope you haven't traveled too far. Just from Cultura City, I explained. We're just passing through. Oh, a lot of people do that, Dr. Roscoe smiled. Most like to get down to the feral mountains around these parts, especially if they're traveling to the Awakening Jungle or those parts. But we welcome you to our little town. So glad to have you. Just sign the book here. 
I filled out the paperwork and handed over the colorful rocks. You two have room three. Let me know if you need anything else. Helena and I walked upstairs to where the hotel rooms were situated above the bar. Well, he seemed friendly, I smiled, feeling a bit better about the situation. I thought we'd be run out of town. Fortunately, we weren't. Helena opened the door. We piled inside the tight quarters because I really need to get some sleep. Minutes later, we quickly fell asleep in our own small beds. The room had not been the most comfortable. It had mimicked the thatch walls and bleak disposition. There was an old television and plenty of magazines strewn out on the coffee table. There were awkward-looking chairs, which looked like the kinds you'd uh, see in the waiting rooms. We were unconcerned about the oddity of Max and Dillatown, although in reflection, I suppose we should have been more aware of some warning signs. I was basically sleeping in a hotel room, which looked eerily similar to a doctor's office. I had been soundly sleeping when I awoke to what was a hand around my throat. I tried struggling and crying out, but the victim above my bed was too good. My attacker had done this before. I was not his first victim. Helena Price was out like a frog on a log, and I was quickly trying to find a way to wake her up. I was stronger than this man, but at a disadvantage I could not recover from. I felt a needle enter the side of my neck and could quickly feel some kind of drug course through, like eels swimming for refuge. I was out. awoke to a bright light above me. My whole body was strapped down to some kind of pleasurable plastic blue chair while next to me was a tray of dentist instruments. I looked back up to the light which mimicked the light you'd receive in your face at the dentist's office. Behind and around me were counters and cabinets, all shiny white and bleached clean. Next to the chair I had been tied in was a casual seat, no doubt ready for the dentist himself. I thought of ways to escape, a part of my nature they would never change. I sought survival. I tested the binds around my limbs, but they were tied to make it inescapable. The chair itself was thick and bolted into the ground. I was confused on who had kidnapped me and what their purpose was, but my answer was answered soon enough as the lone door to the room opened up. The dentist is here, Dr. Roscoe muttered with a soft giggle his ensemble complete with the white coat and already gloved hands. Holy fuck, I muttered, staring back into Dr. Roscoe. What the fuck are you doing? I'm doing what this entire town does, Dr. Roscoe chuckled. We love our craft very much. You didn't answer my question. You haven't figured it out yet? Dr. Roscoe asked with skeptical eyebrows and condescending scrawl. I'm a dentist, Sydney, and like all the medical specialties of Max and Dillatown, we all love experimenting in our field. We love to get to know our studies past the point of others within our field. Speaking in riddles isn't helping. I don't owe you anything, Dr. Roscoe snapped, punching me in the stomach. My intestine absorbed the blow, but my jaw opened up to reveal a screechless howl. Dr. Roscoe grabbed my jaw with his hands before straddling me upon the chair. It was not a sexual straddle. The position was more for convenience and power than it was for sexuality. Not only was I strapped down, but Roscoe's weight kept me from trying anything on top of the bindings. Dr. Roscoe's latex-covered fingers felt my cheek skin like it was wrapping a Christmas gift. I tried biting, resisting, but he held up some scary pieces of equipment off the raised table next to us. If you misbehave, I'll have to hold your jaw open. I stopped, contemplating good behavior in this case. I watched as he continued to fondle my mouth. 
I was able to witness more into Dr. Roscoe. I had not taken the time previously to study the man when we were checking into his hotel. Dr. Roscoe was young, perhaps no more than 35. His skin was flawless like most in the medical field. Its peachy keen shine was second only to organic fruit. His jet black hair was gelled and slicked back upon itself, even though a couple bundles of hair fiber sprung loose like some artistic superhero. He wore a suit and tie underneath the white lab coat as if to ensure his professionalism. Eyes so shockingly blue that you'd probably see their shine in the darkness. He was thin, perhaps no more than 160 pounds. I knew that in a fair fight, I could take him down in a minute or less. His smile was thick with pleasure, while his teeth were, as to be expected from a dentist, blindingly white, straight as a blade, with peppermint scent wafting off of his perky pink gums. Fuck, this feels so good, Dr. Roscoe whispered, his fingers finally grazing upon my teeth as they slid around my teeth in an effort to feel them. Fuck, what am I supposed to do? Dr. Roscoe leaned back and slowly disregarded the latex glove from his fingers. The process was slow and agonizing, like someone trying to take off their sock with their other foot, or the period when someone's trying to take off a condom. But thankfully, to break the awkwardness and to aid in my need of time, Dr. Roscoe filled me in more on his obsession. I've always loved teeth, Dr. Roscoe admitted, as if there was some deep-seated secret he could not admit to the world around him the only bones to be visible to the human experience, the way teeth can shine and express joy, satisfaction, and anger. So I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a dentist. I grew up in Cultura City, part of a decent family, able to go to college and dental school. Upon graduation, I got a job in Cultura City, but after a few years, I realized something was missing. My love of teeth could not be fully explored in my current context. I was brushing teeth, cleaning teeth, telling people how to take care of their teeth, but there wasn't anything for me to do. I came across to this town due to a colleague of mine who lives here. He explained to me that the medical professionals of Maxandilla Town have a very different way of approaching their subjects. Oh, I knew this was the right call. Dr. Roscoe hopped off me and moved to some of the cabinets in my eyesight. He opened one of the cabinets to expose bell jars filled with teeth, each labeled with a different name, title, and other notes. I've been collecting teeth ever since, Dr. Roscoe explained. All kinds of teeth, because everyone's teeth are different. Some are beautiful and untouched. Others are stained by coffee and booze. Some are as yellow as a sunflower. Others are off-white. Occasionally, I'll get good teeth and I'll just be in love and adoration. We have a lot of travelers who come through Maxandilla Town, a lot of them on their way for new hopes in Cultura City. Sometimes we'll get tourists who come to see the balloons. So many of them end up with me, their teeth mine for the rest of their days. When you walked into the bar and smiled, I knew I had to have your teeth. Dr. Roscoe closed the cabinet as if spices lay behind it instead of the jaws of his victims. Dr. Roscoe walked over to me, his gloveless fingers stroking my jawline in anticipation of the acts to come. For now, Dr. Roscoe was committing foreplay with himself. Your teeth were so white, so bright, with the candor I desire and the canines and the straight linear of your incisors. There was no plague to be seen, even though plague is so common in the lazy contemporary human. Your color, though, 
It was beyond white. They were only second to mine. I love teeth with nowhere chip or grit. I love natural teeth and not fake shit or caps. You were a beautiful specimen from the minute you walked into my place, and now in my chair, you've become even more beautiful. You're sick, I snarled. You're really fucked. Oh, am I? Dr. Roscoe straddled me again in an effort to maximize the interaction he desired with my teeth. His excitement was evident in his voice and in the boner he had popped behind his khakis. I'm going to draw this out then. I'll show you just how much I love teeth. Dr. Roscoe tried opening my mouth, but I refused to open it for him. I held my jaw down as if wired, and for a couple minutes, Dr. Roscoe tried without success. <laughs> you think you're the first patient who pulled this shit? Dr. Roscoe demanded to know, but I could tell his question was designed for his sake. You're not. Dr. Roscoe unhooked himself from me and opened a drawer to grab a singular instrument. The instrument looked like something out of a medieval torture. The instruments he had threatened me with earlier looked like elementary tools compared to this weapon. Like a crowbar, Dr. Roscoe plunged it within my mouth. The instrument's grips immediately pulled back my lips and cheek skin. Dr. Roscoe moaned as if receiving sexual pleasure, his bare fingers running up against my teeth again, soaking them in like gold. And after a few minutes of a closed eye, open mouth, Dr. Roscoe and his dancing fingers upon my teeth, Dr. Roscoe moved his tray closer to where he straddled. I could still feel Dr. Roscoe's boner pressed against me as he fumbled in the tray. Why don't we clean those teeth of yours? Dr. Roscoe made it seem like a mutual decision while holding up an instrument which looked like a hook. Immediately, Dr. Roscoe plunged it into my gums. I cried out in pain as Dr. Roscoe pulled in and out like some twisted mouth fuck. I could feel blood rise to the surface of my mouth as the hook pulled and scraped against the high sides of my teeth. It was like being at the dentist and receiving the worst service possible. The entire time I struggled, screamed, and fought the blood swimming in the crater of my mouth. But Dr. Roscoe grinned. Machinery whirled as he placed a sucking device in my mouth cavity, which removed the blood and saliva which had been building up. But Dr. Roscoe continued in an effort to clean my already amazing teeth and drive them into perfection. I was not sure how long we had been there, but it seemed like years until Dr. Roscoe had finished the first step in his cleaning process. Being tied down made it so much easier for Dr. Roscoe to get away with his twisted desires as he loaded up another instrument. This time, it looked like a small circular brush which he doused with a bit of paste. Fuck, you get me going. Dr. Roscoe cheered as the brush whirled around like a whirlpool. The brush slammed into my teeth like a hurricane upon a bog town. Dr. Roscoe's brushing felt like sandpaper upon skin as the brush certainty stripped the bone of its weakness. The paste smelled like stale mint, the kind that had expired in the glass candy bowl at the funeral home. Not even a scent of cheap spice could lessen the pain coming from the brush's firm pressure. Dr. Roscoe was thorough with his cleaning like before. The entire tooth and even the gums were driven into sparkling oblivion. I had never considered myself having terrible teeth, but Dr. Roscoe no doubt made me feel like I was one dirty son of a bitch. I wondered how long cleaning took on less desirable teeth. Once again, time had no meaning as Dr. Roscoe continued his work. Soon it was done, although my teeth still rang out with pain as my entire mouth felt numb. 
Dr. Roscoe placed the tool down and pulled out some kind of foam, stuffing it into my mouth. I couldn't breathe through my mouth as he filled it to maximum space. Don't swallow, Dr. Roscoe winked, his left hand holding onto my jaw as his right hand caressed my cheek. This stuff is pretty potent. Two minutes later, I was instructed to spit out the foam. I hacked it all up while Dr. Roscoe washed my mouth out with water. I continued spitting for a long time until Dr. Roscoe ordered me to stop. Finally, Dr. Roscoe was ready to see the teeth in their cleaned mite. These look absolutely perfect. Dr. Roscoe looked at my teeth like they were some kind of god. The sparkle and complexity upon these teeth are are a new level. Sydney, your teeth will be the best teeth I've ever got the chance of cleaning. Dr. Roscoe bent down, still straddling me upon the blue dentist chair. Using his tongue, Dr. Roscoe pierced through my defensive lip barrier. This wasn't a kiss, per se. Dr. Roscoe didn't care to kiss my mouth. Instead, Dr. Roscoe was running his tongue along my teeth. His fleshy, wet organ slapped against my teeth like a seal upon rocks. I was shocked. This whole time, I thought he had been sexually interested in my body, but instead, the full raging boner and the tongue piercement had only been about my teeth. What kind of person was sexually attracted to teeth? Dr. Roscoe continued embracing my clean teeth with his tongue. I was waiting for the right moment, and suddenly, as Dr. Roscoe seemed to lower his guard, I was able to take advantage. With a singular chomp, I slammed down upon Dr. Roscoe's invading tongue. My sharp teeth split down upon the slippery flesh of Dr. Roscoe as my teeth pulled part of Dr. Roscoe's tongue off his body. Fuck! Dr. Roscoe snarled blood spewing out of his mouth as I spat up the small piece of Dr. Roscoe's tongue. The small piece of tongue flopped onto the floor next to me. I continued to spit up more of Dr. Roscoe's blood, but I wasn't disgusted with myself, but proud. The small piece of tongue laid like a dead slug on the marble floor with no desire to come back to life. A child like me had few things to be scared of, although for some reason I never liked going to the dentist. Perhaps it was this fear of someone invading my body. Perhaps there was something more psychological at work. When I was older, I looked back at my childhood fear with a laugh and a scoff, but I think I realized I never liked going to the dentist or the doctor because of how my mother had died. She had died of cancer and couldn't be saved by doctors and hospitals. I had been scared of the dentist and doctor before my mother's death, but my mother's death had stopped me from being able to get over such a simple fear. The doctors and dentists would reassure me, even when they would cause me pain for the sake of my health. Another dynamic at play was the authority of white men trying to order my black body to work. There was a disconnect and a lack of trust, even with the simpler days of the 1970s and 1980s. I couldn't get over it. Even as a full-on adult, I would skip off yearly checkoffs, and when I'd get sick, I'd play it off as minor. I'd rather go through a couple more days of pain than a visit to a doctor for relief. That sounds crazy, but I guess we all have some kind of weird thing we do. Each time I went to their offices, I felt like I was going to die. Well, Clark, today felt like I was indeed going to perish. You fuck! Dr. Roscoe's voice sounded a little different, a small lisp coming to light due to the tongue injury I had caused. You have mockery, and I fucking love that. I'll make sure to melt that when I rip out your teeth. 
Dr. Roscoe opened another cabinet and revealed a sharp, long needle drill. Even as blood continued to spew out of the corners and slit of his mouth, Dr. Roscoe seemed more happy than otherwise upset over the loss of his tongue. Dr. Roscoe once again straddled me with his raging boner and insane grin. His finger pressed the button to the drill in a sporadic fashion, the drill bursting to life before dying in a repetitive motion. He pressed the button and backed off of it to form little whirling sounds with heavy silence between them. I think I'll start in the back. He pulled out the instrument which had forced my mouth open and once again took the time to prepare my jaw for his plot. Dr. Roscoe lowered the drill into my mouth. The drill sound rumbled through my entire body as Dr. Roscoe finally made contact with my back right side molar. The drill dug into the nerve and blood-lined bone, causing me to scream in pain. Dr. Roscoe hooted with victory as he managed to dislodge the molar. The molar and blood was pooling in my throat. The tooth lodged in my mouth like three wise monkeys rock in Lake Tear. Beautiful, Dr. Roscoe exclaimed. His whole body seemed to vibrate while his pants were wet from either pre-ejaculate or orgasm. This is just going to be beautiful, Sydney. With a mighty clap, the door to the room slammed open and burst against the wall. Helena Price walked in, her gun pointed at Dr. Roscoe. Dr. Roscoe pulled out the drill and turned, still on top of my stomach. I could see Helena as the chair had been elevated for maximum efficiency. Without taking anything into account, Helena Price shot Dr. Roscoe in the head with two strikes. Dr. Roscoe immediately slid off my body and landed on the floor next to the chair. He landed close to the tongue piece I had stolen from him. He was dead and his torture was over. Thank you, I whispered, spitting out more blood and the lone molar that had been forced loose. He was going to take my teeth and probably kill me. How'd you find me? I awoke and found your bed a complete mess. It looked like a struggle from the get-go. Helena began loosening the restraints as she filled me in on what happened. I looked all around the bar and hotel but couldn't find you. I left and got onto the main street and there was only one building which had a light on it and it was this one. I broke in and could hear the distant screams and sounds. I slowly made my way here just in case Dr. Roscoe was working with anyone. I knew it was Dr. Roscoe because this place is called Dr. Roscoe's Dental. Fuck, I whispered, spitting out blood from my back jaw. He owns a dental place and a hotel and bar? I slowly stood up, my body aching in different ways. Helena looked around the room to see if there was any collectibles. She grabbed a couple of the dental instruments and I followed her lead. My legs and arms were a bit numb, so I took my time to adjust to my freedom. I decided to pocket the molar along with the first aid kit which I placed in my bag for later. We need to get going, Helena explained a couple minutes later after we raided the place. For all we know, this town isn't going to like the fact that we murder one of their own. You're right, I nodded. Thank you again. This is the second time you've saved me. You're welcome. No doubt Helena Price believed she had no choice but to save me from the Eater and Dr. Roscoe. The King had ordered her on this journey with me after all. She could not let him down. We quickly left Dr. Roscoe's dental and arrived back at the hotel. We grabbed our stuff and immediately left Maxandilla Town without looking back. We were now heading into the deeper throes of the Balloon Plateau. I was confident that no one out there would wish to lick my teeth. Chapter Negative 12 Air-Filled Heart The balloons on the west part of the plateau were incomparable to the simple thickets on the east side of the floating rock which connected itself to Cultura City. 
On the east side, lone balloons would live amongst themselves or in small bushels around and near the demonic healthcare of Maxandilla Town. But out here in the west, the balloons were like a forest, clearly demonstrating the large amount of balloons that Clark King had played with. Perhaps they represented the importance that these balloons had placed in his childhood. After all, they were one of the escapes Clark King had in the early days of his childhood. Clark King had grown up in a time of oppression, in a time where technology was limited, and where less distractions existed as well. In contrast to Max and Dillatown, a place of distrust and anxiety regarding doctors and hospitals, the balloons were a clear-cut comfort. Walking through the balloons were easy, as the balloons were supported by a thin strip of string, which was as thick as a rope, and implanted into the ground. To walk around the strings was really like walking through the forest. The large balloons floated upward for the most part, and were between the sides of a car and a small house. This is a calming place, I sighed with relief. My mouth had luckily stopped bleeding, although my tongue still visited the empty corner of my mouth, where a molar was nowhere to be found. What do you think, Helena? I don't know, Helena shrugged. You don't seem to know too much. I don't really think about such basicness. Well, to me, this isn't basic. Helena didn't respond and we kept walking. She was quiet, almost like I would be under normal earth standards, but here I felt talkative. We walked in silence for a few minutes before I stopped with an idea. Helena paused, following my suit, but I wondered how game she would be with the idea I had in mind. Let's go jump on one of the balloons, I offered, and Helena gave me quite the skeptical look. Are you scared? I just didn't expect that from you. And why did you not expect it? A few reasons, I guess. Helena looked at me as if the reasons were written with neon upon my face. You seem way too serious and stern to think about jumping on balloons. Normally I am, I shrugged. Normally I'm pretty silent, pretty emotionless, but ever since I started this journey to find Clark King, I felt small pieces of emotion. It's almost this mission is the only thing that's been able to give me emotion in my life. You lived your whole life without emotion, and suddenly you just have it. Yes. I don't know what to say to that. What about you? I've had emotion. I've always had it, but I repress it so well, I think, with logic and reason and not with flickering, fickle emotions. So take a break and jump on balloons with me. Helena didn't speak for a second, but took a long breath before nodding her head. Using our ability to cross air, we climbed up and squeezed our way to the top of the balloon canopy. For miles around us, there wasn't anything except the tops of balloons, all of them different colors, although the colors grouped themselves together like different species looking for tribes to relate to. It reminded me of the colors of neon forest, which could barely be seen from our current location in Gignasco. So should we just jump? Helena asked as if the concept of jumping was unheard of. Yeah, I nodded. Together, right now. I held out my hand and Helena grabbed it. Three, two, one. Together we sprung up into the air. The balloon which was our ignition pad fell slowly to the ground as we flew upwards. In the distance I could see Cultura City and Maxandilla Town, while even Fesferit Sea and Waterfall Austin Tier were visible, even with the heavy concentration of haze and fog in the air. The feral mountains became part of the landscape below us, while up above I could see more of the nebula and a few rocks, the content of which was unknown and mysterious to me. I could see the growth of a smile enter the usually tight smile of Helena Price as her skin lit up with flush and the black knot of her hair seemed less stringent with full blasts of air we received above the balloons. We crashed down towards the balloon canopy once again before jumping up once more. This time we flew even higher. Our descent and fall was slow and magical. Gravity was no longer the enforcer it normally was, 
and for the first time, I believe I fully enjoyed the new landscape to which I had been thrown into by my superior back in the tangible reality of Earth. Without speaking much, we just jumped for a while. We used the fun time to move us further west towards the drop-off point to the Faroe Mountains, and after a long period of jumping, we calmed down and landed back on the floor of the plateau. <laughs> you were right, Helena told me as we strode forward, heavy breaths from our jumping. That was fun. Weird. I never really knew fun. Well, what was fun to you before this balloon jumping? My job. What's your job? It's a long story. We have a long walk. You wouldn't believe me. Why is that? Because my reality and your reality conflict. How do they conflict? It just does. Helena didn't say anything for a second and continued moving forward before responding. I know there is something different about you, Helena explained. It's like you've never been outside of the world before. Like you've lived in a box your whole life and finally got a chance to see Gignasco. I, I find it very odd that you're looking for Clark. Not many people do. But then, some of your statements and experiences, it's like you're not from Gignasco at all. But if you're not from Gignasco, I don't know where you could be from. You're right, I'm not from Gignasco. Helena did not appear visibly shaken from that information, but perhaps she just did a good job concealing it. It explains why the king was drawn to your aura and why I haven't been able to place you within my depth of knowledge, Helena added. So if you're not from Gignasco, where are you from? My planet is called Earth. What's a planet? It's like a world, I explained. So is your world like this? Helena asked. No, it's not really like this. So what's it like? Well, we have a thing called gravity. Everything is located on the same plane, which is circular. So basically everyone lives in the same circle and nobody can just walk in the air. That sounds weird and boring. It's not weird to me. Walking in the middle of the air is weird for me. <laughs> Walking in the middle of the air is just natural here. It just is. Anyway, I came here specifically to find Clark and to find out about Lavender. I've heard people talk about Lavender, Helena confessed. It's this source of energy that Clark supposedly uses to mold and shape Gignasco. Without Lavender, Clark would just be another cog in the machine of Gignasco. You don't believe in Clark, I questioned, picking up on the supposedly within Helena's statement. I don't get paid to think about Clark. Well, that's kind of obnoxious to believe that you can't have an opinion outside of your job. I've never thought of it because I never had to think about it. So think about it now. Why bother? So if you help me find Clark and we find him, then you'll believe in him. Absolutely. Logic is the core of my beliefs. Same here. So how would I get to Earth? Helena asked as we winded through the rope holding the canopy of balloons together. I don't think you can. So Earth people can come to Gignasco, but Gignasco people can't go to Earth? Yeah, I believe so. I did not have the heart to really tell her what Gignasco was. I was not in a callous mood to tell her that she did not exist outside of a single human subconscious. That blows. But you called Earth boring. I did. She nodded. I did. What got you invested with the King's command? You're just filled with questions, aren't you, Earth man? I am. If you must know, I was in a beautiful relationship with this guy, and he broke it up. It wasn't beautiful. And so I decided to commit to some kind of change and ended up in the king's service. What was the name of your boyfriend? First. His name was First. Yeah. Helena looked at me with a roll of her eyes. I'm not inventing a lie. I'm telling you the truth. Oh, you're so sweet to tell me the truth. I joked. Why did he break it up with you? Mm, some kind of bullshit. What kind of bullshit? 
He said I was cold, and selfish, mean, and abusive, or something to that effect. He was so happy with me, I thought things were going so smoothly until he dropped these bombs on me. I didn't know where the sentiments were coming from. It was like, you live in the desert, and then you wake up to find the desert has frozen over. There were no signs, suggestions. I wondered if he had lied about his feelings, if he had wanted to be my problem and not his, and at the same time I wondered if I misconstrued our relationship, did I find it so amazing when in reality I was loving a dump of a relationship? That kind of blows. Eh, yeah. What about you? Have you got caught up in any loving relationships? No. I've never even had a girlfriend, boyfriend, anything of that nature. And why is that? I've never felt emotion. Not even love? Nope. I've had sex, fucked a couple girls, even a guy just to make sure. Wow, you just dropped some baggage on me. What baggage? Just everything. So you consider yourself asexual? I guess if you want to put a label onto it, sex just feels meaningless to me. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. I looked over to Helena with a smile. An absence of sex would be terrible for most, but for me, it's, it's a normality. I don't need it to survive. So life is about survival for you. Absolutely. My, my kind are hunted into extinction on Earth. What is your kind? Are you like an alien all of a sudden? Helena joked, although there was a tone of seriousness deep in the pool of her question. No, I'm just a sociopathic low-key psycho. Aren't we all? But I'm more than most. For my job, I get to hunt people down. I get to kill people. I get to stalk them like prey. It's a job which fits who I am. It's a glove that fits very comfortably. Sounds like me, Helena acknowledged. You're not alone. I killed Dr. Roscoe and that eater without thinking about anything other than the fact that it was them or us. Most people would struggle with death and with killing, but I view it as simple as drinking water or seeking shelter. Perhaps that does make us crazy in the eyes of men, makes it easier to condemn us than to admit that we are but pieces of a human condition drawn to the extreme. You paint a picture quite well. For years, I justified things about myself, but found it all easier when I admitted I just was. That's quite poetic of you. I've always had a poetic side. The conversation stopped as we reached the cliffside of the rock we were on. Down below was a large slab of rock which hosted the Faroe Mountains, blanketed in snow and harsh winds. From up here, one could feel the cold air like they were standing in the presence of air conditioning. Well, this has been nice, Helena admitted with a smile. We're the same person, after all. You could tell? Absolutely, minds can sense like minds. <laughs> I grinned, looking down at the nearby tips of the Faroe Mountains. Ready for another geographical adventure, like mind? Is that seriously a question you're going to ask me? Helena Price scoffed as she stepped off the side of the rock plateau. She formed her own staircase down to the nearby mountain, not even turning to see whether I'd be okay. Chapter Negative 13. Dry Time There was a reason the Feral Mountains were named such. As we stepped downward, I could feel the continual cold air wash over me. My skin flared up with goosebumps as my recently cleaned teeth shattered within my jaw. It didn't take too much for us to touch down onto a small nook into one of the nearby mountains. It wasn't snowing, but the wind picked up snow and cast it around. I could see a small nearby rock to our current southwest, while some kind of volcano was in the southwest as well. There was a wall of rock past those two islands, casting my vision with a deadlock effect. How do we get down this mountain? I asked Helena, who gave me a big grin. We slide down. How do we slide down? I questioned, but Helena decided to show me instead of explain what she meant. 
Helena jumped off the small nook and landed with a large plop onto the mountain slope. The snow beneath her acted as a catalyst for her flight as she slid down the mountain. By the speed she went, she would reach the valley down below in a matter of minutes. I took a deep breath and followed her lead, watching where Helena moved so I could avoid rocky slopes, trees, and other obstacles. While I slid down the behemoth, Clark King educated me on the motivation behind the large, feral mountains. Youth can be isolating, a fact that any child is aware of. By the age of 11, I was more than aware of the social constructions of the world and, more importantly, of my school. I was one of the few kids who did not fit a group. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't academic, per se. I was black, and I was well off compared to some of my classmates. I was an outlier in many ways, and as such, I was thrown into the shivering pits of separation and loneliness. Most of the teachers noticed this, but only a few seemed to care about my flight. Some would personalize their class for me in small ways, while others ignored it. Some for the fact that kids like me had to get used to these negatives. Others ignored my issues because I was black and isolation was just due. Either way, I was left alone as a forgotten kid. I was the last chosen in sports, the last person to get a partner, and if there was an odd amount of kids, I would be the one stuck in a group of three. Interestingly enough, I felt the same coldness years later, but not due from the isolation of others, but from the isolation of body and mind. As I grew older, I found my younger self and older self were worlds apart. I could not do the same things, nor did I think the same way. The older me was corrupted and worn down with stress. The human body is comparable to a machine when it comes to age. We can only work so hard before the machine begins to suffer. Everything is worn down with age and time. Nothing seems to last forever. There was a disconnect within this worn-down body and mind, which could only be explained through coldness. A couple minutes later, I arrived at the bottom of the mountain and in a collective basin of valleys, which had been alleyways between mountains coming together to form one union. It all reeked of isolation, even though Clark's story was more than just isolation. I didn't want to focus on Clark's story right now, more so for the fact that I wanted to get out of these cold-ass mountains as soon as possible. I dusted myself of the snow as Helena and I walked forward. Normally, we would just use these mountains to cut through to the awakening jungle, Helena sighed, but I think it would be easier to get out of here as soon as we can so we don't freeze to death. I agree. There's a village close by. It's a jump down from this plateau, so we can head there, travel up and around, and hook up with the awakening jungle through the Thousand Waves Sea. The Thousand Waves Sea sounds intimidating as fuck. It's better than these mountains, Helena chuckled. Trust me. We trudged through the valleys, which were still without life besides a few distant wolves and bears, which otherwise left us alone. The sky above us turned dark purple, indicating what I assumed was another night. I spent a few minutes wondering how many days and nights had gone by, but for some reason, my entire journey, the subconsciousness of Clark King felt like one day. I wondered how long I had been unconscious back in the Federal Laboratory. I also remembered that they were witnessing me on the screen, watching and listening in. I had said some questionable things, and now I felt like I needed to rein it in. If only I was able to communicate with the men and women of my agency, I'd feel much better about the situation. But I moved with quiet speed alongside Helena Price. My feet felt like bricks while my body's muscles felt like unsoiled and rusted metal, trying to move once again. We had been walking for a while when we noticed a lone cabin. The lights were on in the cabin, which stood by its lonesome and away from the mountains which could entrap the house with an avalanche. Should we see if we could take a break? I asked Helena, who joined me and I in the cabin. It's so cold out here, it would be great to take a moment to get on our feet. I don't know, 
Helen aside. Don't you think it's weird that there's a cabin all by its lonesome out here in this cold-ass valley? I mean, I don't think so. People like to live in weird places all the time. We're so close to the edge, Helena muttered, putting further towards the end of the valley. I couldn't see the edge for shit. You don't want to take a quick break? I would love a break. I just don't know if this weird-ass house is the way to look for a break. I guess we could power through. Helena could read through my cold demeanor inside. Fine. Why don't we see if we're able to rest? Helena gave into the argument and led both of us to the front door of the cabin. Helena knocked at the door, which opened to reveal a sweet-looking older woman. She immediately said hello and ushered us inside her cabin. Oh, you must be freezing. Please come in. The old woman cried as she closed the door behind us. The sealed-off valley could still be heard from behind the doors and walls of the astute cabin. I studied the old woman, who was wearing thick sweatpants and two thick sweaters. The only visible parts of the lady were her face and the tips of her fingers from behind the fabric. She had white hair, which seemingly seemed puffed up to look fashion-forward, and eyebrows which were thin and barely sculpted. She had thin wire-framed glasses, the lens in the shape of cubed rectangles. She had wrinkles, which connected her face like rivers upon a delta, and eyes the color of mulch dirt. Her lips were thin, pursed, and without embellishment. Her house echoed her look. The cabin was quite old and reeked of a tightly packed living quarters. The kitchen, living room, and bedroom were all one room, while there was a large closet and closed-off bathroom space. It was rather warm in here, perhaps 60 or 70 degrees. There was a small bulky television in the living room and bookcases filled with books. Clothes were filed neatly while the entire place was spectacularly clean. Not a speck of dirt could be seen. China and pictures hung up on the wall, while a shelf of tea, coffee, and biscuits warmed over the sink. There were two windows, one over the sink and one parallel on the other side of the cabin. Oh, what are your names? The old woman asked as she practically pushed us onto the chairs in the living room. The old woman shuffled over to make tea as she boiled up some water and pulled out some cups. I'm Helena, and I'm Sydney. I'm Marie Gay. The old woman chuckled. <laughs> I know what gay means these days, but back then, it meant happy. I'm quite straight. Helen and I let off a small laugh to show that we had acknowledged the poor joke. Where are you traveling to and from? Marie Gay asked, and I wasn't sure exactly what to say. Fortunately, Helena figured it out for me. We're traveling from Cultura City to Collegium City, Helena explained. Oh, you're taking quite the long route then, Marie Gay smiled as she put tea bags in fine china. It's ironic how close these cities are by distance, but how far one has to go in order to get to them. Indeed, Helena nodded. What brought you to live in this cabin? Oh, I've always loved these mountains, Marie Gay explained as the hot water came to a boiling temperature. My husband, Paul, and I lived in Maxandilla Town, but that place got filled with riffraff, and after all those awful people moved in and long after our children had left the nest, Paul and I decided to build a cabin up in here in the Faroe Mountains. We aren't the only ones up there. There's a small town not too far away. You could take a look at the map up on the wall there. Indeed, there was a detailed map of the Faroe Mountains on the living room wall. I stood up and looked at the map, which was filled with small pinpricks. There was one golden pin, which noted where Marie Gay's cabin was at. There was a large white pin, which I assumed was the town down below the mountains, as well as red pins scattered throughout the large mountain range. Wow, there seems to be a lot of people around here, I nodded. How do you all survive this weather? 
Oh, well, you've just happened to arrive in the throes of winter, Marie Gay smiled. During the majority of the year, the snow melts in the valleys. The winters are tough, but I promise the rest of the year is beautiful and inhabitable. So we have to hibernate a little bit to survive. Marie Gay walked over with the prepared tea and biscuits, sitting the tray on the table in between the three of us. My husband passed away two years ago, Marie Gay explained. I think when the weather clears up, I'm going to sell the cabin and move to a city or such. Maybe Cultura City, a nice retirement community. That sounds nice, I smiled as I grabbed some tea. I could tell the tea was too hot for me to drink, but Helena sipped the hot water. <laughs> drink up, Marie Gay chuckled, looking at me. You'll need the energy to continue forward. I was skeptical of Marie Gay's comment. She had just handed me the damn tea and was demanding that I swig it down. Granted, I knew old women and grandmothers were all about stuffing up their guests with food and drink, but for some reason, I didn't like Marie Gay's attitude. I set the cup of tea back down on the tray. It's a little hot, I said. I'm Marie Gay directly behind her glasses. I'll give it a couple minutes. Oh, I'm sure it's not too hot, Marie Gay stared back at me. Her lips were smiling, but her eyes were not. That really threw me for a loop, so I stood up. I think we should get back on the road, I ordered, looking over to Helena, who had finished half our cup of tea. I would like to make it to the next location before night actually falls. Are you sure? I'm so comfortable, Helena told me, yawning and growing sleepy. I was extremely sure by now that the tea Marie Gay had given us was not just tea. Marie Gay stood up in an effort to grow even with me. Oh, Helena is right. You should stay for a bit. Marie Gay shrugged before launching herself at Helena. Helena, who was like a sloth in headlights, turned to face the old woman. Confusion dotted both of our faces, although shock from Marie Gay's momentum was mixed in. Marie Gay opened her mouth wide and immediately began sucking the air around Helena. As though Helena's skin was made of dust, Marie Gay began sucking up some kind of physical or otherwise spiritual element from Helena Price. No! I cried, moving forward to stop Marie Gay. Marie Gay raised a singular finger from beneath her misguided home-knit sweaters. The finger sliced into my arm, and the force from Marie Gay shoved me across the room. I landed against a knitting machine and then onto the floor. I slowly got to my feet and looked up to see Helena on the brink of death. Helena was almost asleep, no doubt forced to sleep from the tea provided by Marie Gay. Helena looked down at me, her skin and muscle having departed. Marie was almost done with her consumption when finally Helena was nothing more than a skeleton with clothes. Marie stood up, her wrinkles having vanished. She now looked more like 40 than 80. The sweaters looked more fitted while her arms and shoulders popped out more from under the fabric. Oh, you should have had your tea, Marie snickered. I'm not like the other eaters, you know. I live for compassion, or at least compassion I can naturally make while finding my next meal. You're an eater then, I confirmed. Did you kill her for meat? No, I take time, Marie Gay winked. Can't you tell I look younger now, Sydney? I I wonder how young I'll look when I take your time too. Perhaps even 18, it'll take years for me to decompose back to 80. Marie Gay, the eater, struck forward, and I immediately twisted to avoid her sharp fingers. I grabbed my bag off the couch as well as grabbing Helena's blade. With a quick twist, I turned around and struck Marie Gay in the shoulder with Helena's blade. I pulled back Helena's blade to expose the weird blobby yellow substance which marked Marie Gay as a definite eater. Marie Gay twisted back from the blade which gave me the advantage to leave Marie Gay's cabin. The wind was still picking up snow, but I ran forward. From behind me, I could hear the cries of Marie Gay as she came after me with howls and absolute pain. Fuck. 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 
I muttered, running forward with worry. There was so much to take in, and I didn't know how I was going to get out of this situation. Helena Price had saved me through two sticky situations, but the third strike had been enough to dethrone her life. Helena had spotted the first eater and had taken care of them quickly, but now an eater had finished her off. It was beyond weird irony, the kind of coincidence that Clark King's subconscious was behind. I was unable to protect Helena, and she had been stolen. My weakness within this disgusted me. I continued running, knowing full well which direction the village lay in. If I could run to the village, I would be free. The snow howled like wolves which I had seen earlier. I was an easy prey for so many, but out here in the feral mountains, it felt like minutes before I could calm down, but I would not be calm for long. Marie Gay grabbed my back shoulder. Immediately, I lifted one of the dentist's instruments from my pocket and plunged it into Marie Gay's eye. That didn't stop the eater who raised her sharp fingers to slice into my skin once again. We committed to a dance as I once again wielded myself with Helena's sword. In the valley of the Feral Mountains, we went to war. She had one eye upon me, but it was an eye that would be vigilant until my escape or the death of one of us. You stole a life, so I'm going to steal yours, I cried out as my blade came close to severing Marie Gay's left hand. Marie Gay dipped backwards and grinned. I've stolen more lives than you, I'm willing to bet, Marie Gay countered as she was inches away from piercing my jugular. You may kill for fun, but I kill for survival. I know more about survival than you. You're a human. You are not an eater. I don't get eaters, I shrugged. Were you ever human or you animals who try and pass as human? In my case, I was once human, Marie Gay whispered as the fight continued. Her nails came down upon Helena's blade. My arm injury from earlier had frozen to my skin due to the sheer temperature of the feral mountains. Back when Paul and I lived in these mountains, we were just beginning our ascent into age. I was not afraid of death nor time. There were reports of an eater in these mountains, and we were told to be careful. I was always careful, or so I fooled myself into believing. I had heard of deaths, but none of it had affected me, or seemingly affected me, I believed. Paul had traveled to the nearby village while I was out in my garden, right by the house. I didn't think I'd be attacked in broad daylight right outside my house. My guard was lowered, and a small child came up to me. The child looked dusted and rusted, as though it had spent years in the mountains by his lonesome. He barely had a sheet of fabric which covered his dignity. I was shocked and confused, but... Before I could help him, the little boy overcame me, beginning to suck me of time, just like I did to Helena back in the cabin, just now. I immediately grabbed a nearby brick and slammed it into the boy's head. The boy was not killed automatically by the stone to his head and managed to bite into me. His chunky yellow blood splattered everywhere, but the bite was so small, I didn't, I didn't think anything of the bite at the time. Paul came back and we reported the attack and the death of the eater to the nearby village. All was well, and even though I was so shaken from the event, my sword missed Marie Gay's head by a few inches, and Marie Gay grabbed the sword with her left hand and forced it downwards so she could attack me with her right hand. I pulled the sword back and flipped backwards a little bit. Marie Gay immediately pounced, but I rolled in the snow to avoid her. Then what happened? I questioned as I stood up, engaging in battle once again as Marie Gay came closer. Months went by, and a hunger in me formed. I knew what the hunger was. It was as though some instinct that had lain dormant in me flooded to life. I fought it for so long, laying next to Paul in bed and wondering how I was going to get to the next day without feeding. Finally, not even I could control it any longer. I awoke feeling so refreshed and satisfied. The first time in months. 
I turned over to realize that in the middle of the night, my body had taken the prey I had access to all along. I had killed Paul for his time. Indeed, I looked younger, but I didn't want it. I tried killing myself, but failed in doing so. I was destined to live in these mountains in pure exclusion since. Don't act like you're some victim, I snarled. In some ways, we are all victims, and in others, we are all attackers. Marie Gay rolled forward, and I had the advantage. I slammed my blade through her chest and pulled the sword out. I couldn't tell whether Marie Gay was dead or would slowly die from my attack. But using this time, I took flight once more. I ran without thought, ran without focus, and soon found myself on the edge of the rock. I could not see Marie Gay, the eater, but for all I knew, she was right behind me. I wondered... Had it been too easy to incapacitate Marie Gay, had she wanted that from me all along? Clark King interrupted me at the wrong time with one of his monologues as I stared far down into the village below. I had feared dentists and doctors for all my life, but following my mother's procedure, I became wary of age, time, and death. It would not have a profound effect until later in my life, but it was like there was a small drop in a large landscape. I remember how I would volunteer at a nursing home. I was afraid in a way, but I'd meet wonderful people who had been running from death all their lives. They were not grateful for the decades they had experienced. Instead, they gave me a negative critique of the world around them. I was upset. My mother had been stolen early, but they had been given more time. But later on, I reflected someone could live for half the time and yet double the accomplishments than some of the individuals I met in the nursing home. Marie Gay was an individual who had a profound effect on me. Even though I'd only see her for 20 minutes each week, she was the grateful among those in the retirement community, always positive, always reflecting on her experiences. There was always a smile on her face books she was reading and fruit from the small garden she attended with others in the retirement community. Marie Gay made age seem like a positive while she had the power to make me forget about death, but she reminded me much more of my fear of death when she died upon the cusp of my evolution into adolescence. I felt like I only had seconds to make a decision. I slid off the side of the mountain like a slinky. I flew through the air and away from the feral mountains and the eater. The air began to warm up as my body slowly began to regain feeling. Adrenaline still coursed through my body while I still couldn't believe what had happened. I slammed into a grassy knoll on the outskirts of the village I had seen from such a long time ago. The village was in the distance, and feeling safer now, I allowed my body to slide into unconsciousness upon the gale. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...